Some of you know the name Bob Dylan. Maybe the last time you hear it from this pulpit, but <laughs> Dylan has been a uh, prolific songwriter over the last 60 years. It's hard to say where he stands today with uh, Christianity, but in the late 70s, he converted to Christianity from being a Jewish atheist. Uh, he released an album called Slow Train Coming. And many of his fans, who once claimed him as their prophet, uh, suddenly hated him. And perhaps because he confronted people with some stark reality like this. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. In 1979, he got that right. <clears throat> when it comes to the Lord, there's no room for neutrality. You're going to have to serve somebody. Our encounter with Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew has stressed the same. In chapter 12, verse, verse 30, Jesus told the Pharisees, Whoever is not with me is against me. When it comes to Jesus, you can't be neutral. You either serve him as his disciple, or you're against him with the devil. Jesus drives home this same point in our passage today, and it largely hinges on what Jesus reveals about his greatness. Jesus' greatness rules out neutrality. Let's start reading in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. And while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, 
He said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We wish to see a sign from you. That's what these scribes and Pharisees want. Uh, For decades, they have been the authorities in Israel, but recently they have found that authority challenged by Jesus. Recently, Jesus healed a a demon-oppressed man, and the Pharisees accused him of doing this work by Satan. Jesus then exposes their, their faulty reasoning. That doesn't make sense. Satan can't cast out Satan. Also, you can't get good fruit from a bad tree. So he's telling them, call it like it is. Good fruit comes from a good tree. It appears, however, that Jesus hasn't yet convinced them. And so they wish to see a sign, as if to say, prove yourself. You prove that you're not in cahoots with the devil. Of course, we might be asking, what more do they need? Jesus has already healed the sick. He's made the blind to see. He's restored a girl's life. He's straightened the man, the the, the crippled hand on on the man. And all of these were activities that were showing in the Old Testament that were were, uh, anticipating the Messiah, right? Is, Is this not enough? Apparently not. They want more. Something better. But Jesus doesn't play their game. There are times in Scripture where the Lord performs a sign to strengthen His faithful, like when He, when he helps Moses to be more bold with a, a sign, and, or when He helps Gideon have more assurance with a sign. But when it comes to the, the hardened skeptic, the person who's unwilling to see what's already plain, normally we find Jesus denying their requests, and He goes straight to the heart. He says here, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Evil meaning they're they're not aligning themselves with what God has revealed. Adulterous here is being used as a metaphor. So spiritually speaking, they haven't been faithful to their covenant husband, their Lord. Instead of acting on what God has already revealed, they are resistant. And by saying this, Jesus is actually comparing them to the wilderness generation. By saying this evil generation, you you will find that in in the law about the wilderness generation. God had performed sign after sign after sign in the Exodus, and yet the people continue in unbelief, just, just like these religious authorities. And for that reason, Jesus says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. God did something spectacular through the prophet Jonah. Jonah that made Jonah himself a sign to the Ninevites. Verse 40 explains what that sign was and how it relates to Jesus' mission. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, what is the sign of Jonah? The, the, sign, uh, uh, that, the sign is that Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. That's nearly a direct quote from, from uh, Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. The Lord had, uh, if you remember the story, the Lord had commissioned Jonah, right, to go preach to the Ninevites. 
And Jonah runs in the opposite direction, gets on a boat, right, going the other direction, and, and the Lord then orchestrates this, this whole scenario. It seems like everybody in chapter 1 of Jonah, including the, the, the wind and the seas, everything is responding to the Lord except Jonah. Right? And the Lord uses, he orchestrates this scenario where the prophet gets tossed overboard to spare some pagans. And as part of his plan for Nineveh, the Lord then appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, Jonah chapter 2, if you want to look at it, I'll read some from it. Jonah chapter 2 describes the prophet's experience in the fish using some retrospective poetry. That is, he's, he's, he's out of the fish, right? He's nice and safe on the shore. And he's looking back on his experience in the fish. And he, and he describes it with some poetry um, of how he wrestled with death itself. In fact, the, the meter in the poetry is, is pretty cool because as the poetry goes on in the text, it starts to break up at the end and, and it's no longer sensible because he's entering the, the grip of death itself. But Jonah chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol. Sheol is the, the grave here. So he's in a fish, but he's describing it as, as the grave. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. If you remember from some of the Psalms of David, David can speak of the, the grave or the place of the dead as seas of darkness swirling around him. See, you, you get this idea here too. Into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Again, a, a picture of the grave there, this place where, where God, it, where, where, you're, where your absence of not conscious of the Lord's presence anymore. I'm driven away from your sight, yet I, I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Again, the grave being compared to a prison, right? So Jonah's experience in the fish is likened to death in the grave. As far as his life is concerned, it's virtually over uh, for three days, it's virtually over. But then the text says this, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. So God, God heard his prayer. And by the end, it says, The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So he's now a prophet who's been sent by God, who's, who's entered death, this, this grave. Now he's back from the dead, so to speak. And it's in that state. A prophet sent by God who's entered death and now back from the dead. It's in that state that he goes to Nineveh and he preaches. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the sign. 
Jonah himself is the sign to the Ninevites and the people of Nineveh, it says, believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So Jesus takes that story, that sign of Jonah, and He relates it to His own mission. The religious leaders want a sign that proves Jesus is legit. And Jesus says, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. That is the sign of death and resurrection. His death and resurrection. In the same way Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, Jesus would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But Jesus' experience, while it's like Jonah in some ways, it's different in much better ways. So when Jonah, for example, when Jonah wrestled with death, he was running away from the Lord. He wasn't faithful. When Jesus experiences death, He does so because He is faithful to the Lord. He enters death sinless. Also, whereas Jonah had to to look to God's temple for his salvation from death, Jesus replaced God's temple through His death. He is the ultimate temple and sacrifice that takes away our sins once and for all. Also, when Jonah comes back, it's not because he defeated death. Jonah would eventually lie in the grave, and this time, Sheol would not let go. But Jesus, when He rises from the dead, He defeats death altogether. The grave has no hold on Him. He rises on the third day, never to die again. So the sign of Jonah established a pattern that pointed to Jesus and His death and resurrection which is greater. That's why Jesus says something greater than Jonah is here. Now this phrase, three days and three nights, does lead to some questions. You know, elsewhere Jesus says that that He will rise on the third day, which seems to mean two nights. Also, all four Gospels agree that Jesus' body was prepared for burial. On Friday, the day before the Sabbath, and then after the Sabbath, so we got Friday, Saturday, that would be Sunday now, after the Sabbath, the women find Jesus' tomb empty. So you got three days, two nights. So how do we square that right, with our text? Some have argued that, that when you read Jonah's prayer and compare it to, to Jesus' final hours on Thursday, how he speaks about being distressed even to the point of death. That Jesus' descent into death includes what He began to experience in Gethsemane, in the garden. That's one approach. And you can kind of see this fleshed out when you read Jonah's, the poetic way Jonah's describing himself and some of the things Jesus says in Gethsemane. A better approach, I think, is to see the phrase three days and three nights as an idiomatic way to say three days. Uh, In 1 Samuel 30, for example, verses 12 and 13, a man hadn't eaten for three days and three nights. But then in the same text, when when he's describing that period himself, uh, he says literally today three days, meaning the day before yesterday. You got the day before yesterday, that day, and then today. Uh, but it refers to it in that same passage as three days and three nights. 
Or again, in Esther chapter 4, verse 16, the, the people didn't eat three days. It says night or day. And that period ends, the text says, on the third day. So the same here. Jesus, Jesus stays in the grave, the idea being the first day-night, the second day-night, and into the third day-night. That's when He rises from the dead. So Jesus' point is straightforward here. There, there was only one sign that Jesus intended to give these skeptics. The greatest sign of all, His death and resurrection. That sign proves Jesus' greatness. And Jesus is speaking here, right, in our, in our text, He's speaking here of it as a future event. We have the privilege of looking at this sign as a finished work of God. God proved that something greater than Jonah is here by raising Jesus from the dead. Now, perhaps you question that sign of Jesus' resurrection. Perhaps you came today to kind of scope out what Christianity is all about, and and you kind of remain skeptical of Jesus' resurrection. But I would challenge you to consider just a few things. Your access... Or, or our access to Jesus' resurrection is no different than the access you have to nearly all historical events. You access historical events through the witnesses present and the testimonies or the records left behind. In Jesus' case, historians of all stripes agree that we have the records of multiple eyewitnesses to Jesus' death and burial in a known tomb. Those same eyewitnesses saw the empty tomb in which Jesus' body was laid. We also have the records of eyewitnesses to whom the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus appeared for 40 days. Paul even names people like Peter and James and the 12 and five, 500 others, most of whom were still alive when, when Paul was writing. And the idea is like, hey, if you don't believe my testimony about the risen Jesus, go ask some of them. They're still alive. They saw the same thing. In fact, some of the, one of the reasons why the gospel writers name Individuals is so that the people who know those people, who know the women who saw the empty tomb, who know John and Peter, they'll go ask. So we're not left with just the potentially open-ended testimony that the tomb was empty. We have the complementary testimony that the witnesses saw Jesus bodily alive and heard him and touched him and ate with him for 40 days. That means the resurrection of Jesus is not just a religious idea. Jesus didn't just rise in your heart. It's not just a mythological story from which we glean timeless truths. It's saying that God entered history... In Jesus Christ, Jesus died for our sins and then He rose bodily never to die again. That makes Christianity vastly different than most other religions. All that matters to most religions is whether the experience holds true regardless of the historical verification. 
Christianity is dependent on its historical claims. The resurrection of Jesus is a historical claim. And if it's a historical claim, then everyone must face it. Jesus puts it before the religious leaders here. And the text forces you to deal with it as well. The resurrection is the sign of Jesus' greatness and you can't ignore it and I can't ignore it. His greatness rules out neutrality. So if it rules out neutrality, then how must we respond to Jesus' greatness? And I think Jesus gives us four ways in our passage that we must respond. First, when you recognize Jesus' greatness... You must respond to His Lordship with repentance. You must respond to His Lordship with repentance. I get this from verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. How much revelation did the Ninevites have? What, what, what is it about the true God that this pagan people knew, knew? Not much, right? I mean, they had the universe around them and some dude that just got vomited by a fish that says, repent, right? Not much. And they fall on their faces in repentance for days and days. The king of Nineveh shut down the whole economy. They shut down their feasts. Even their flocks didn't eat. Everyone focused on turning away from their evil and crying out to the Lord for mercy. And I think Jesus' point here, that Matthew's, the way Matthew's put this together for us, how much more should we repent from our evil? If they repented with that little bit of revelation, how much more on this side of the resurrected Lord should we repent? We don't have only the prophetic pattern pointing forward We know the Lord Himself risen from the dead. God has proven Jesus' authority in heaven and on earth. And so the appropriate response is repentance. Thomas Watson once uh, said that repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. A grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Fundamental to repentance is that there is a humility before the Lord Himself. The Spirit of God comes into your life and and you agree with Jesus' words and you love His holiness and you long for the transformation that He gives. You experience godly sorrow over your sin and And you will seek to make things right with God and with others. 
Repentance also, we see in, in this passage uh, that Jesus alludes to with Jonah, repentance is also something that you say, oh, I'll just do that tomorrow. I'll, I'll turn away from my sin tomorrow. Like the whole city shuts down as they cry out to the Lord. It's not something we put off. That's not taking Jesus' Lordship seriously. If the Holy Spirit has exposed sin, perhaps you're reading the Bible. Perhaps, uh, perhaps it's something you've heard from, from, from a, a sermon or from, from a song or from, from another Christian, right? Perhaps it's just your conscience burdening you over your wrongdoings. Stop what you're doing. Shut down the routine. Never settle for anything less than a life that keeps with repentance. Repent from vain thoughts, from worldly desires. Repent from backsliding and and laziness and harsh words against your spouse. Repent from wayward things you're, you're keeping in secret. Bring your sin into the light, whatever it may be. Confess what needs to be confessed. Mend what needs to be mended. Jesus is Lord. He's risen from the dead. And what that means is that His cross is effective to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So in light of that efficient death on the cross, come forward and repent. Confess your sins. He promises to forgive you and restore. That's the first response. I think I used the word efficient. I meant effective. His death was effective. So come forward and repent. Second, when you recognize Jesus' greatness, you must hear His wisdom with adoration. Hear His wisdom with adoration. Look at verse 42. It says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Have you caught how offensive this would be? These are the religious elite in Israel. They have the scriptures and they study the scriptures. They believe themselves superior to the other nations. And then Jesus takes pagan Nineveh and the queen of the south, both Gentiles, both not a part of God's covenant people. They didn't have the scriptures, the promises, the temple. And yet by the little revelation they do receive, it moves them. What is Jesus implying about these folks? These pagans respond to God better than you do. They're showing themselves to be more God's people than the religious elite in Israel. How did the Queen of the South respond? 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1. When the Queen of Sheba, that's the Queen of the South, when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, She came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, 
she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the text says there was no more breath in her. There was no more breath in her. The half was not told to me, she said. And Jesus says something greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was the king who was appointed to to build God's temple, whose wisdom would display the beauty of God's rule over a people. Solomon also ended up forfeiting all of that when he turned to the idols. But still, there was a pattern in Solomon built into his life as king that anticipated Jesus. Jesus is the true king of Israel who's appointed to build God's better temple. A temple that's not limited to Israel, but a temple that that will be for all nations. A temple that's not set on a chunk of land in Israel, but a temple that would swallow the earth and make everything holy. Jesus is the true king whose wisdom surpasses all. I mean, where did Solomon get his wisdom? The Lord. The Lord made Solomon. And now he's here in the flesh before these, these guys. Colossians 2.3 says that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. According to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, his wisdom will lead to justice in the earth and a renewed earth where all is at peace. So when you hear Jesus' wisdom, does it take your breath away? Do you say, oh, the the half has not told me. You know, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I see how much I still have to learn about him. He is infinite in wisdom. (laughs) Do Do you come to Jesus with your problems and your questions and your confusion Do you tell him all that's on your mind like this woman did with Solomon? Asking him for help, asking him for guidance? Are you pursuing his wisdom in the the word? I mean, think of the great links that that this woman went to 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 hear from Solomon. How far she travels, how much she brings. And we have something greater So are you pursuing Jesus' wisdom and and listening to His Word preserved and written in the Scriptures? He is greater than all counselors. And third, when you recognize Jesus' greatness, you must want Him, not just His benefits. You must want Him, not just His benefits. Jesus tells a strange little story here in verse 43. And perhaps it's relating back to the man, the demon-oppressed man that he's just healed in the same chapter, uh, back in verse 22. But I think he takes this and makes it a lesson, a broader point of application here. 
He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. You, you get this pattern, in, especially in the Old Testament, where the unclean spirits end up in desert-like places, these abandoned wilderness-type places and uh, with the ostriches and the uh, scavengers, you know. So it's just, just they, water, they go out into these waterless places, but they, they find... They find uh, no rest there. And then it says, Ah, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and, and put into order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they, they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. And here's where he broadens it, right? So also will it be with this evil generation. So it seems that Jesus is here speaking of a person that has experienced some of the blessings associated with Jesus. They have experienced Jesus casting out demons by the Spirit of God. There's been what we might call some moral reformation that, that goes on and things seem to be back in order. And, and, and the problem is that the house is still empty. And I think what he's getting at here is there's been no positive commitment to Jesus himself. And he ends up worse than before. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He applies it to the whole community who's remaining skeptical about him. What he calls this evil generation. They have experienced as a community, I mean, you even have these places where Jesus, like a while back, where Jesus sends the, the legion of demons into the pigs, right? And, and so something. Some great has happened there. He's, he's delivered this little town from, from these, these legion of demons. So, so you got Jesus. He's coming into these communities. Uh, they, have ex- they experience something incredible. The king comes to restore all things, casting out evil from their midst. But despite these good gifts, they remain uncommitted to him. And I think that's what Jesus means by the the house remains empty. Jesus isn't filling it. The Holy Spirit isn't filling it. So what about you? Are you someone who wants evil gone? Maybe evil gone from your community. Maybe evil gone from the political sphere. But you don't actually want Jesus himself. Are you someone who wants moral change, but not Jesus himself? Are you someone who wants a particular sin gone from your life, but apart from filling your life with Christ? Are there evil habits you want to change? Relationships you want healed, yet no positive pursuit of Jesus, no devotion to maturing in discipleship. I mean, we've sat down with with folks before, some wanting addictions gone, some wanting sexual sin gone, some wanting to to overcome their anger issues, some some wanting marital conflict resolved, some wanting greater self-control, and that's all great and good. But to want all those things without a wholehearted love for Jesus will leave you worse off than before. Jesus' story should be a warning. 
He's making sure that the thing you want most is Him. Not just moral reform. Don't just want His gifts. Want Him. Don't just want freedom from X, Y, and Z. Want Him. He's the point. He's the goal. He's the end. He's the treasure. He's the glory. He's everything. Don't settle for just absence of evil. Want Christ. That's what heaven is about. That's what the kingdom will be about. He's the center on the throne. And then finally, when we recognize Jesus' greatness, we will obey His Father as spiritual kin. He will obey His Father as spiritual kin. Verse 46, While He was still speaking to the people, behold, His mother and His brothers stood outside asking to speak to Him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' point here isn't to dishonor his earthly family members, but it's to teach on belonging to the most important family of all. Being a true child of God was not tied to one's ethnicity. Again, think of the Jews here and who he's talking to. I mean, they they think just because they descended from Abraham, they're good to go. They're part of the family of God. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. Because you're not doing the will of my Father. So being a true child of God was not tied to one's ethnicity or class or or abilities or their heritage. It was tied to one's disposition to Jesus. Luke's Gospel tells this similar story. Uh, When Jesus was teaching this woman in the crowd, she cries out, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And Jesus responds... Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Even my mother who nursed me must bow before me. Must listen to my father. Jesus is redefining family around him. As ultimate son, he obeys the Father and he does his will. And those who belong to Jesus will bear the same family resemblance. So if you belong to Jesus, you too will be marked by obedience to the Father's will. It's not that you obey to enter God's family is that you obey as God's family. God makes you a part of the family. God adopts you in and through Christ. God gives you a new status and a new inheritance inside the family. And from that fullness of salvation and saving grace and and joy and, and all that you have in Christ, man, the children 
love their father and they want to follow him and learn from him. I think when I, as one of your pastors, watch you serve one another from week to week and hear stories about you meeting needs and reading the Word and praying, I see that you are Jesus' brothers and sisters. Uh, Our brother Aaron Finch, you know, he couldn't be here today, probably listening online right now. Uh, Couldn't be here today because of his recent seizures seizures and major back surgery, but I was discussing this passage with him couple days ago, and and, uh, he responded with some words that I think might encourage you. So I quoted this text to him, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, is, is my brother and sister and mother. And Aaron responded like this. He says, they are indeed. I've got to say, I've believed that for a long time, but I've never witnessed it this clearly. The generosity, the care, the genuine love, it's unbelievable. The body of Christ is certainly not perfect, but it's just about everything we all wished our genetic families could be. At the end of the day, our blood relations will sell us out to governments and leaders, but the body of Christ will stand beside us as well as might, and we will see each other through to the end. You see, by doing the will of your Father in heaven, you guys have displayed the greatness of Jesus. They have witnessed His grace and glory as you've served and loved and given. So let's pray that this family of God, this little outcropping of God's family, continues to excel in these sorts of things that others, even outside of our walls, might come to know the greatness of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You have done a good and great work through Jesus' death and resurrection. I thank You for the cross and how You have made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Forgive us for our sins and and then help us to see the greatness of Jesus in His resurrection glory. We were baptized into Christ and in doing so we died to that old way of life. Help us walk in newness of life through repentance and adoration of Jesus' wisdom, wanting Him above all, and obeying the will of His Father in heaven. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.